The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello friends and welcome to another edition of CPR Unplugged. I am your friendly neighborhood therapist and host, Stephen Marshall. We are joined today by a very special guest, Dr. William Beverly. Dr. Beverly is a licensed psychologist and licensed marriage and family therapist. He's a faculty member in the counseling department at Glendale Mountain Community College, where he also serves as a coordinator for the Behavioral Health Sciences Program. Dr. Beverly has held leadership positions in a wide array of behavioral health settings all over the state of Arizona. Some include residential treatment for teens, therapeutic group homes for adults with serious mental illness, forensic psychological programs for sex offenders, and general outpatient counseling and psychiatric care. Dr. Beverly is also an adjunct professor at Northern Arizona University, where he has taught in the education psychology department for the last 10 years. So Dr. Beverly, sounds like you are a busy guy. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So our conversation today is going to focus around borderline personality disorder. And I think that historically, borderline personality disorder has been something that's difficult to diagnose, maybe even difficult to understand uh, for a lot of people. So I was hoping that you might be able to give us an idea of, you know, what borderline personality disorder is and maybe how it differs from other personality disorders. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing just to kind of take a step back and talk about personality disorders in general, and BPD being one of those that has the most, most stigma, I guess, attached to it, or certainly one that elicits or evokes a, a strong response from those in the profession. I was trained, uh, you know, in the 90s in this stuff when we were still using DSM-4. And the reason I mention that is uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in its fourth edition uh, still had what we called the multi-axial system, axis one, axis two, axis three, and so forth. And axis one was the psychiatric disorders, axis two was personality disorders and what we now call intellectual disabilities, axis three was medical and so forth. And if you recall, Axis 2, because it had intellectual disability and personality, that was considered to be the conditions uh, that were uh, pervasive and persistent and chronic. And it makes sense. I mean, if you have a full-scale IQ of 55 and you have an intellectual disability, uh, 20 years later, you probably don't have an IQ of 125. And so general cognitive functioning was seen as a stable construct that can fluctuate, but personality was seen the same way. And let me just give you one example of how it was taught to me. I had a professor that said, axis one is what kind of mental illness does this person have? And axis two was what kind of person has this mental illness? Excellent. And so right there, the notion that these are the disorders that tell us not just what you're experiencing, what happened to you, what you've been through and what you're feeling. They tell us who you are as a person. And that's where when it comes to something like borderline personality disorder, we have a lot of the stigma related to it because we see this as not just some we, we, we see the the pain uh, before I think we see the humanity. Mm. Um, and then also we have um, still something in our uh, notion of personality disorders is we have these three clusters, right? Mm -hmm. Cluster A, odd and eccentric, cluster B, dramatic, erratic, emotional, cluster C, you know, anxious. It, I'll tell you how it was explained to me from the same mentor. Uh, he said, if you ever want to remember cluster A, B, and C, just remember WWW. And it wasn't a website. He said, WWW is weird, wild, and worried. And so cluster B is kind of that wild, erratic thing. And so where is borderline situated in terms of its cluster? It's situated next to things like antisocial personality disorder, formerly, you know, psychopathic or sociopathic personality disturbance in DSM-1 and 2. It's situated next to narcissism and histrionic. And so one of the things that you could do to even have, they've done studies where they found that not only does borderline 
elicit negative reactions when they give you know people two different vignettes and have you you know rate how the person's prognosis may go even when you put personality disorder unspecified cluster b traits people are like ooh goes in a different pile uh, so the symptoms of borderline are in that cluster B and, and the ones that I think most people are more familiar with are those, uh, you know, uh, impulsivity, suicidal or parasuicidal, you know, behavior, um, the vacillating between idolizing someone or idealizing them and then completely hating them. You know, the, you're either on the pedestal or in the gutter, but the other things that are often overlooked, and this is where a lot of my treatment has been with folks who have been assigned this label is the just intense chronic feelings of emptiness Mm. Uh, the, the severe interpersonal disruption, and it's just being like nobody nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and those that what they call it, you know, affective instability, which really means just moods that you can never get a handle on that are out of your control. And borderline personality disorder to me is the disorder that I, I see it more similar to, you know, severe clinical depression of just, there's this intense sadness when I have mm. the privilege of helping someone through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, I, I mean, thank you so much. That that is so enlightening, you know. And as you are walking through the clusters, the the three W's, you know, the weird, wild, worried. I think it helps us sort of frame, okay, what we're dealing with. And you know, when I when I hear wild, I I think, oh man, this is a little bit scary. What you know, what's what's going to happen here? You know, do you think that there are some stigmas associated with? BPD and and the treatment and um, you know how how do we work to overcome some of those things? Absolutely, and uh, in terms of stigma, I think you you were at a, a workshop I did recently where I I asked the audience uh, by show of hands who here has worked with someone with borderline personality disorder, and that when I, anytime I do a talk or workshop on this particular condition, that's my first question. And every hand goes up because to some degree, folks have, you know, we know that these are individuals that tend to utilize our services. Um, then I ask the follow-up question, usually while the hands are still up in the air. And I say, by show of hands, who here enjoys working with people with borderline personality disorder? And the hands come down very fast. And I sometimes see no hands remaining uh, I've asked that question dozens of times, and I've never seen anything in double digits still up in the air, even with a large audience. Now, why I think that is, and this is not just based on my you know, clinical or anecdotal experience, but the, the research kind of helps us understand this too. Uh, most of us who interact with folks who have borderline personality disorder typically do so in their darkest hour. Mm. And that was my experience for many years as well. Um, and what that means is we see these individuals in crisis uh, and oftentimes an interaction with someone with borderline personality disorder often ends with, you know, 602-222-9444 and we're getting a mobile team out and then they go through all these different arrays of services and we might see them at a later time and then when things begin to exacerbate in an outpatient or, other, you know, other type of setting, we're having to utilize these services. It wasn't until less than 10 years ago uh, that I was in uh, intensive outpatient um, and then uh, family therapy uh, in, with the treatment of borderline personality disorder that I began to see the different facets of it. And I began to see that when you um, are no longer working with folks just in crisis, just in their most vulnerable points, but at all these other stages of treatment and recovery, mm -hmm. you began to see that, oh my God, this is one of the most treatable conditions it's a condition in which recovery and uh, hope and resiliency are the norm are common. And if you are only on one side or just different pockets of the, the treatment continuum, then you are going to have a very myopic or narrow view uh, of this condition. And you in most instances may be blind to the incredible growth that folks with this disorder experience in their lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think thinking of those misconceptions, misconceptions that people hold, 
um, the idea that recovery is possible is just such a powerful message and that learning to manage the symptoms that you experience, you, you know, that is, that is within the realm. And, and, and when you were describing how clinicians typically encounter someone who's in pain or crisis, I think that is probably the most common uh, interaction that you have. And so it, it skews the entire view that you hold towards uh, a, a person who's managing a, a diagnosis of BPD. But it sounds like, you know, as you were able to dive deeper into it and, and maybe even work with some folks, you saw the unstable relationships, these intense emotions or the impulsive behaviors, and you were able to find a, a pathway forward with them. And so I guess that, that kind of leads us into the idea of treatment. What are some of the treatment options that are available? Yeah, glad to speak to that. And kind of to give some context to treatment, because this also speaks to what we were just discussing it reminds me a little bit of uh, this comes from the heart and soul of change, you know, Scott Miller, Barry Duncan. It comes from Michael Lambert's work on the common factors, Bruce Wampold. If you look at psychotherapy outcome research, uh, a say in Lambert in uh, the heart and soul of change, which was, you know, Miller, Duncan and Sparks, they outlined what they consider to be the four factors that appear to account for change that happens in therapy. And, you know, uh, the, the largest one is what, what we call extra therapeutic factors. They call client strengths, things that are unique to that person. But it's the others that follow that are really important. I mean, that accounts for, according to them, 40% uh, of the, the variance, if you will. But uh, 30% of it's a therapeutic alliance. I'll speak to that momentarily. 15% is interventions, approaches, and methods. Speak to that as well, because that was the heart of your question. But the other 15% is what's known as installation of hope. Sometimes they call that placebo. Now, that's important because even when we're not talking about a flesh and blood real client, when we're talking about just a vignette, a person on paper, we see the stigma. So some of it, as you mentioned, was we see folks at their most vulnerable and in their darkest hour. And if our experience is limited to those moments, then we will form certain expectations. But now those expectations start to impact our experiences. So what I mean by person on paper or vignettes is there are a number of studies that have been done where you take clinicians, could be LCSWs, LPCs, psychiatrists, psychologists, and you give them two vignettes. And one describes a person and it says their diagnosis is PTSD. And the other describes a person and it says their diagnosis is borderline personality disorder. Everything else could be identical. It's talking about trauma, periods of disassociation, thoughts of self-harm, uh, you know, in, intense, you know, intrapsychic suffering and distress. And then they have the clinicians, the psychiatrist, the clinical social worker, the therapist, whatever rate, um, how likely that person is to recover and, and talk about their prognosis. And even though people are looking at the exact same client description, the exact same phenomenological experience of that person, just having that BPD moniker leads the person to see this person is less likely to recover, mm. more difficult to engage. And so part of it is without a doubt, encountering people at their moments of greatest distress, seeing them in crisis, and then they go somewhere else. And the other part of it is that begins to shape how we perceive folks that we encounter later on. And then when we see someone as less likely to experience growth, recovery, healing, and change, that common factor known as installation of hope, conveying to the client through our words, actions, or otherwise that this is going to get better, that is gone. That accounts for just as much as our methods, our interventions, and our treatment. So all the bells and whistles and all the techniques that we have uh, really get kind of washed out by us not being able to see that this person's capable of experiencing healing and change. I, uh, before I talk about the methods, because this, this connects to it, I once had a client. She was going to see me and I was going to be the third person at uh, one of the major providers here in Maricopa County that she was going to be seeing in like six months. 
And it was because one person went to Jewish family, the other one person went to Touchstone. I'm starting to narrow what place it was at, I guess. And she said, I need you to promise me that you'll still be working with me in six months. Mm. That's a tough question. A lot of us may have heard some variation of that. Now, this comes from my strategic therapy training uh, and my solution-focused stuff. But I told her, I go, can't do that. And she looked, all right. And I go, because I can't promise you that you'll still have these problems in six months. Wow. And then I told her, well, part of what we got to work on together is you've already assumed that six months from now, this will still be in your life, this pain that I've only heard briefly about. One of the things that I'm going to work with you on is just entertaining for a moment the idea that six months from now, these things aren't as bad. Hmm. And she's like, all right. Now, I still was at the agency in six months, but I would have said that even regardless of the outcome. But that that's where I, I and, and that wasn't just BSing her. I, I, that's how I approach this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, there is, I have, I don't think it's a radical belief to see that, yeah, this is something that with a systematically ap- applied approach, this can get better. Now, as far as the approaches out there at the workshop that I, I, I met you at, I, I think I showed a picture of Dr. Pepper. Yeah, and then, I, <laughs> and then I showed 50 pictures of other soda cans like Mr. Pibb and stuff like that. Mr. Pibb doesn't have a doctorate degree, but he tastes the same. And what we know is that when it comes to borderline personality disorder, DBT, uh, and I stole this from Scott Miller, DBT really stands for doing better therapy. Hmm. Uh, Marsha Linehan describes her approach which is well-established and works very well with this population, but she describes it as benevolently demanding. Mm. Now, she also says, I unconsciously stole all of this from Carl Rogers, and I can provide that quote in a citation if needed. She says, in rereading him, I just realized how radical he is. But if Mm. you think about those three core conditions of a helping relationship, unconditional positive regard, Now, regardless of anything you've ever said or anything you've ever done, by virtue of your humanity, you're worthy of dignity and respect. I give that to everyone I meet with, even when I'm in forensic units with some folks that have done stuff that it's hard to even describe. Then you couple that with, you know, empathy, you know, being accurate empathy. And we all know what that is as clinicians. But then the last one there is authenticity, genuineness, being real. And benevolently demanding means being benevolent, seeing people's dignity and value, and then demanding being genuine and being real. Now, all three of those conditions have to be operating simultaneously. I can, and this is empirically supported. They did a study where they compared person-centered therapy to dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, and they both showed incredible outcomes in terms of self-harm, depression, interpersonal functioning. And they had certain things that were present in both of them. When you have just genuineness and authenticity, but people don't feel love, meaning L-U-V, listened to, understood, and validated, well, you're just being real. You're going into surgery without anesthetic. Dave Chappelle has a whole bit on when keeping it real goes wrong. You can't just be real. Now, conversely, if you are empathic and caring and see people's value and dignity, but you're sitting on your hands when it comes to what you're seeing in their lives, you're not helping them either. Mm. I've had you know therapists that I've been training say things like, uh, I'm really worried about this client. If she doesn't, if she, if she pisses dirty a third time with Tash, she's going to lose her kids and her kids are the most important thing to her. And I don't think she even appreciates the gravity of this. And the, the, the case manager's eyes were tearing up. And I go, God, what did the client say when you shared that with her? I didn't share that with her. That's what we're doing next session. She did it next session. She was like, I, I, I wasn't totally honest with you in our last encounter and that home visit. She wasn't even a therapist, man. She was better. She was a case manager. And she was like, uh, I'm worried that if this keeps going the way it is, you're going to lose your kids. And I know how much they mean to you. And it's going to rip your heart out. And I'm worried that I'm more worried about it than you. Mm. It was the most powerful encounter they had. 
and mm-hmm. the client was moved to tears. She shared it with the treatment team. And so what I mean by all that is Linehan would say things that if you look at the transcript, you're going to be like that. Oh my God. She said that she, a client with borderline once told her, I don't know. I might, I don't know if I'll make it to our next session. I'll probably start cutting again. And she said, then you're going to miss our next appointment because they talked about her show rate. And that is like, Oh, you really, but here's the thing. Think about someone in your life who you would go to for advice. And you need to talk to someone who's going to be real with you. For me, it's my sister. Mm-hmm. Valerie has said things to me that would make people blush. And if you said it to me, it, they'd be fighting words. Mm-hmm. But my, I also know that I could call my sister and say, there's a body in the trunk. And she'd say, I have a shovel and I'm on my way. Like she, if I went to prison for that, she'd put money on my book so I could get ramen and sticky buns and stuff. <laughs> and I'm being a little glib here, but the fact is the people that can say those things to us are the people who we know see our dignity and value. So acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, even person-centered therapy, what they all have in common is you meet them where they're at, but you don't leave them there. And so there is this benevolently demanding approach where you hold the person's hand, but you pull, you pull a little. And I tell you this with the utmost sincerity, I could show you transcripts of sessions I've had with folks with borderline and sessions I've been in as a client with with the person I love who who had had that diagnosis for a minute. And folks have said stuff that if I showed you the transcript, you would say, I bet you walked out or they walked out. And it's like, nah, because the anesthetic was there. Mm -hmm. I hope that kind of answers the question, but there's a number of these approaches, but what they have to have are those core conditions. Once those are present, it's remarkable what you can help that person with. Absolutely. You know, and, and the concept of the benevolent and demanding the dignity and the authenticity, the realness, you know, I, I, I'm trained as a therapist and I think a lot of therapists do struggle with the demanding side of it the real like the, the real approach how how do you how do you think you foster that you know for clinicians who are you know coming into who are coming through their training or coming up in 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 the world of psychology and they're encountering a patient and they have to say something that is uh, that is very real I, I sometimes i call it you know the misappropriation of compassion because mm. it's like it's not compassionate to hold this fact from them but how, how do you convince someone to have those difficult conversations? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is where, you know, I'll preface it with a reminder that there's a reason we can't do therapy with our friends. And mm-hmm. there's a reason we can't do therapy with our family. Uh, the reason why is because there is a way that you will respond as a person that is fundamentally different than the way you would respond as a clinician. Mm-hmm. And when you're working with people with borderline personality disorder, they are going to share things with you that are going to pull on your personhood. Quick example. I saw a therapist. Uh, he was a, a child therapist working with an 11 year old girl. And I have an 11 year old daughter. So when I saw this session, it just was a punch in the gut. Mm-hmm. And he uh, was talking to her about her self-esteem because she was having, she was engaging in self-harm. And so this was one of those cases where they were like, kind of, can you watch this session? We need a consultant. So I was assisting. This gentleman did not need my help. He was amazing. And he shared something that I think I would have failed as the clinician, just because I would have had some counter-transference with an 11 year old daughter. Mm-hmm. And she shared with him, this little girl, and she said, uh, I'm so, she, she cussed. She said, I'm so fucking ugly. Mm. And my first response, and this is everyone in this room, is no, you're not. You're beautiful. And he said, what makes you think that you're ugly? And that was like, oh, that's right. That's what you got to say as a therapist. You have to explore those feelings and those thoughts. And when I hear an 11-year-old share that, it's so evocative mm-hmm. that I, my first reaction is to console. And he was, it's a different type of authenticity. It's a therapeutic authenticity. And that's where I think some folks blur it. It's like, oh, I'm just going to be myself. Mm-hmm. In some ways, you 
you're yourself, but you're yourself as a therapist. Mm -hmm. And as a therapist, he had to resist the urge to console and comfort and instead genuinely enter into her world. Now, what happened? Oh, my God. She started sharing stuff. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, at the end of that session, there was he, he, he was Rogerian, if you will, that, that he was providing some of that soothing and comfort, but he had to walk into the dark with her mm -hmm. and he had to sit with the pain. So much of what we do when we're being genuine is you have to bear witness and be present with people in their darkest hour and not rush to console. And so that to me is, is, a, a, is part of it. And I think the other part of it, if it's, if this is if we're talking about Younger therapists, I don't mean by the candles on their birthday cake, I mean by their years in the profession or entering the, you know, within their first five years of practice postgraduate, uh, I, I share a quote with them. I don't know where I got it, but it's written on my wall for a reason. And it's this, it's not about being impressive. It's about being real. Right. And I think a lot of times as therapists, we're searching for the right things to say. We're thinking about interventions and techniques and what people really want is love and to return to that acronym they want to feel listened to understood and validated so i hope that i kind of meandered there but i hope that kind of speaks to it a little bit uh that it's that piece of some of, of therapeutic authenticity not mm. just billy sitting with you because if my daughter says that i cannot say what makes you feel that way and, and spend 20 minutes as she sobs i'm going to be like who said that? I'm going to go. <laughs> hey, we're getting there and yeah, yeah. set them straight. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as you, as you were sharing that, uh, most people listening probably have that impulse, like, let me rush in in comfort. But when you are wearing, you know, the therapeutic hat or when you are in there, you're, you're doing a service. And, and so I, I really like the way you put it, like uh, myself as a clinician you know myself as a therapist what are we what are we doing here and so you know thank you for sharing that story really powerful um you know so that was that was kind of the uh, our our side of the fence when we're when we're treating someone you know going back to the the patient how does borderline personality disorder affect a person's ability to really like work and function in their day-to-day -day life certainly it would be different for everyone but are there some common themes that you see in ways that it is impactful. Yeah, well, I I can certainly speak to that, and I'm actually grateful that you used the word patient. Yalom, one of my favorite psychotherapists of all time, in one of his books, it might have been The Gift of Therapy or Existential Psychotherapy, he indicated why he still uses the word patient. And we've had a lot of terms in our field over time. Uh, I, I like client, you know, that was from Rogers. And when it started to get to things like consumer and recipient, that's when I started taking some issue. Um, but patient can sometimes be considered an archaic term. But Yalom says, I still use the word patient because it comes from, I, don't, I can't remember if it's Latin or Greek, but he says it comes from the word that means literally one who suffers, one who hurts. And it was the idea of putting at, at the outset the idea that the person in front of me is experiencing pain and suffering. So using the word patient is almost trauma-informed, if you think about it. Right. It's recognizing the gravity of what that person's experiencing. Day-to-day -day life for someone who has borderline personality disorder, there's almost a sequence, if you will. The diagnostic criteria listed in the DSM, I, I, I believe, is not intended to be like uh, chronological, it's kind of arbitrary, but I see it as like those chronic feelings of emptiness coupled with intense fears of abandonment. It's perceived or actual fears of abandonment and that despair that the person feels. And then the the mood instability, which means just not being able to get a handle on what they're feeling. And then lastly, put that with um, an unstable sense of self. Some people have even called it like in the psych psychodynamic literature, they call it a self disorder. It's like, that's what I meant by like nobody nowhere, you know, in, in terms of self-concept, which is different than self-efficacy or self-esteem. This is what comes after the two words, I am. Mm. There's a blank there. That is what 
leads to the interpersonal distress where the person is just feels like they cannot form these bonds where they feel safe and secure. And so, and I know I'm getting real theoretical, but it helps me understand it. If you look at Eric Erickson's stages of development, adolescence is referred to as identity formation versus role confusion, where we develop a sense of like self or personhood, self-concept. That's part of borderline in terms of what's absent or what's impaired or what's painful. What's the next stage of development as you go from adolescence into young adulthood? Where does this disorder usually get diagnosed? Late adolescence, young adulthood. That's followed by uh, intimacy versus isolation, where the key task, according to Erickson, is to form enduring bonds of love and friendship. So you have this period of like, you know, 14, 13, up to like, you know, mid 20s, where the development of a sense of who you are, the person you are, the person you are becoming, and then followed by being able to establish some type of connection to the outside world. Uh, the uh, early developmental therapist talked about a, a safe haven, a secure base that once you have this place of security, that you can then explore the world knowing that you can then return back. Those are all absent. And so the day-to-day life, what we tend to see, the, what's observable is the interpersonal intensity, the, the intense conflict. You hear that thing, frantic attempts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, you know, intense affect and anger, which just means like the lashing out. And then, of course, the self-harm, parasuicidal threats and gestures, even transient psychotic symptoms. So that's where under incredible distress, you have those disassociative elements. But what's happening that is not clearly observable is that intense despair. I mean, it's just such pain. Mm. And that's what I meant previously, where it's like, I know this isn't a mood disorder proper, but that's where I see it kind of in that element of it's the, the level of depression and despair is so massive. This is a slight digression, mm-hmm. but it's important to remember when we say clinical depression, that episode means a very different thing depending on what disorder it's associated with. There's something known as a major depressive episode. It has nine criteria, you know, hopeless hell. We all know that. However, someone who's bipolar, who's experiencing a major depressive episode, has a higher rate of suicide than someone with clinical depression who's experiencing that episode. So that's what we talk about sometimes, unipolar depression and bipolar depression. Mm. That's why we often ask someone who's depressed, or we should ask, do they have a history of mania? We don't use that jargon, but we'll, we'll assess for that because mm-hmm. we know that that's more severe, that depression. That's not to minimize clinical depression. Borderline will have those same features. And I think when you see someone as a patient, one who suffers, one who hurts, not one who's threatened to hurt themselves if you don't help them. Mm-hmm but one who's experiencing a pain they see no way out of. Then you see the humanity. Can I speak to a second about self-harm? Absolutely. Yeah. I was hoping, I was hoping you would. Yeah. So um, this is again, going to feel like a stretch, but it's, this is how my mind works. When we have things like civil unrest in our society, when we have things like, uh, where we see people start to light things on fire because of what's going on in their, in their community. I was watching this panel discussion where this person, someone in the audience asked, uh, they were talking about riots. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a discussion on racial equity and, and societal uh, justice. And the person asked a, a well-intended question, and I'm glad they did. They said, why would, help me understand this, why would someone burn their city down, vandalize businesses, uh, break property uh, when they are feeling that they're being severely uh, abused and mistreated by society. But why, why destroy a city? Why destroy a neighborhood? Mm. And here was the example that was given. And the, the gentleman said, imagine if you're on a deserted island. You ended up there marooned. You got a few days left to live. There's not water to drink. There's not food to eat. And there's a blistering sun. 
You've tried everything to signal distress. You, you, you wrote SOS with you know branches and you've done all these things. You lit a little fire over here and you still see nothing on the horizon. He said, I guarantee you it's human nature. We've seen this happen. This is what happens. If you had the ability to, at some point, you'd burn the freaking island down. You would light every tree on fire. I'm dying. I need help right now. I don't care if every coconut's screwed up now. I, you would eventually light the plate. You'd, lit it, you'd light it up. And those are those cries for help. Those are those like, I, I don't even know if I want to die, but I need to tell the world right now, I can't live anymore in this skin with these feelings and I don't know what to do. And so I'm lighting the island up. And so I'm hearing that again, we're always therapists. I'm like, shit, man, I'm supposed to be learning about social justice, but I'm like, oh my God, that's borderline personality disorder. Because yeah. people are like, why would you destroy yourself? Why would you take a paper, paper clip and do that? And I'm like, dude, it's, it's Martin Luther King said it himself. Violence is the voice of the unheard. Mm. And so when you don't feel listened to, understood and validated, at some point you're lighting it up mm. to get help. Right. Right. Wow. So powerful. What, what a great uh, analogy too. you know, when you think about civil unrest, you say, okay, yeah. there's, obvi there's obviously something going on here. You know, no one would burn their home or their community to the ground. No one who is in a healthy state of being is going to be, you know, self-harming. It, and it's because of the conflict that's enduring within, within that community or within that person, you know, and as you were sharing about, uh, or relating it back to Erickson and the idea of, you know, a healthy identity and maintaining healthy relationships, you know, those are really firewalls or safeguards against, against destruction, right? Against the, totally. the, the things that tear us down. You know, if you have a, a understanding of your values, that's something you work on in treatment as well. And you also, you're, you have strong relationships, people who are willing to endure the suffering that you're encountering and hear you. And, and like you said, listen to you, understand you and, and validate what your what your experience is then some all of a sudden that which is intolerable becomes tolerable you've instilled some hope yes and as far as understanding that's another word for empathy and in that same session a woman spoke up later and i'm so glad the guy asked the question because it was the impetus to people really getting it myself included and this is where we're connecting like civil unrest and social justice to bpd a woman then said Someone may have lost their windows, but I don't want to lose my son. And then I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I try to consider myself down with the cause, and I'm, like, totally having my head blowing up here. Like, I'm learning things in real time. And now, if I see someone throw a brick through a window with, as a city is, like, completely coming unearthing, I see that this person saying, I'd rather lose a window than lose a son. Mm. And so when you start to see what looks like violence or destruction, but in context, and you see it as survival, or you see it as distress or hitting this red, pulling this lever on the wall of like, oh my God, we can't, I need, I got, I, I'm going to die if we don't, we can rebuild the island, but we can't rebuild my son. We have to do so. And so you start to see a person's self-destruction and mutilation as a i need help now and i and so yeah i know i'm diatribing here now but that changed me and that was recently you know mm -hmm. so this is something where i continue to understand human behavior in a sense of people being against the wall mm -hmm. and here's what do we see though if you if you're a casual observer watching uh you know, riots on TV, you're, you're scratching your head and you're some, many people are thinking law and order. It's like, uh, mm. I mean, a, a held all shot and a trip to desert Vista or a trip to County jail. And let's, let's fix the, that's a property destruction. And we're not necessarily thinking, Oh my God, mm. we need to, we need to get in here. This is unacceptable. Mm. People are, the violence is the voice of the unheard. And so as a clinician, I remind us, and I shared this in that workshop, that it's no, it's no coincidence that the word listen 
and the word silent are spelled with the exact same letters. Mm. And so being able to just bear witness to someone's suffering and hear it and listen to it and attend to it. Now, then what we do is we listen to, and this is where I get a little solution focus, some of those heroic themes in the person's mm. problem-saturated narrative, if you will. <laughs> um, but seeing someone's behavior that otherwise is inexplicable. Mm. I, I, an article that even just the abstract I would love to share with you, I, I think I shared it in that talk you were at, is it's from the 60s so it's like 60 some years ago and it's it's called something like the syndrome of the wrist cutter and so it's it's back in the old this dsm one days when this one was published dsm2 is 68 so yeah this is dsm1 and at the they talk about the they're talking about like introjects and object relations and the mother figure and all that but at the very end of the abstract it describes self-harm as mm. ultimately resulting from an inability at that moment to give and receive love. Oh. And I'm like, oh my God, these psychiatrists, they were kind of nuts back then, but they got it in that sense. Right. Wow. You, you know, I, I was, as I'm kind of unpacking some of that, I, I also am kind of drawn back to this, the idea of the benevolent and demanding. So you, you sit silently, you listen, you show up empathy and love, and then through that establishment of, of trust and relationship, you're able to hold accountable and hopefully show a different way forward. And it seems as though <laughs> when we say it like that, oh, so easy to do, but not so easy in practice. And, and mm -hmm. certainly, you know, within um, family dynamics or uh, relationships at work or even the therapeutic relationship. And so that leads me to then my next question, which is really like, how can friends or family or coworkers help support someone who has um, borderline personality disorder? Well, this, um, for one, it takes us full circle to the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, is, you know, stigma, but what the research actually tells us and how so much of our experience with borderline is limited to if it's a, if it's a pie chart, like this sliver of like the ultimate most painful moment. I had a loved one that uh, had, and this was after their second suicide attempt and they were severe where they had a diagnosis of, and the person was like 14 at the time. And they, and so that's rare, right? We tend to not diagnose personality disorders in adolescence, it's controversial, but you have the idea that early diagnosis leads to early treatment and so forth. Mm -hmm. And they put personality disorder, unspecified borderline features. And I, it was a death sentence. It was a death sentence. I was like, all right, this person's going to be making freaking puka shell ne necklaces at Art Awakenings on first Fridays for the rest of their life. I was like crying, man. Right. Was, yeah. yeah. It was my daughter, man. And so I was just like, all right, there it is. Hmm. It, it's, a, it, it's, it's stage four. It's terminal. Hmm. And then I did the research. Hmm. And one thing that before we talk about like how well, what family can do and what can do support it is you have to first understand that recovery is not only possible, it's incredibly likely. Mm -hmm. So longitudinal studies, and I'll just limit it to one of them incredibly briefly, like the 60-second, 30-second, maybe Reader's Digest version, which is a 16-year longitudinal study, one of the most statistically powerful and well-controlled uh, studies done on borderline personality disorder, 16-year longitudinal study um, showed that uh, not only did 88% of folks in this study have a period of remission of at least, oh, no, excuse me, 99% had a period of remission of at least two years without symptoms. 88% had, I believe it was four years, 78%, eight out of 10 of people in this longitudinal study who were inpatient, suicide attempt, roughly 80% had a period of symptom remission where they're not meeting the diagnostic criteria for eight years, wow. which means overwhelmingly. And there's, this is this, they've done different variants of it, done it with adolescents, a majority of adolescents diagnosed with P, you know, BPD features don't meet the criteria in adulthood, that kind of stuff. What we find is like people who get assigned this diagnostic label for good reason, an overwhelming majority 
are going to have a roughly a decade in their life where they don't meet the criteria. What an incredible thing. I, I use the term stage four terminal. It, it'd be like if someone got, and I just lost my uncle recently to lung cancer. It'd be like if someone goes, oh, stage four lung cancer. But don't worry, Uncle Joe's going to have a decade after this where he's symptom-free. I'd be like, "Are you, my prayers were answered. Right. Again, I only I learned why did I learn this stuff? The moment I heard this from a psychiatrist who I loved to this day because he he heard me cry. I did my whole Puka Shell Art Awakenings analogy to him. And he's like, Billy, take a deep breath. And he started talking to me about this stuff. And then I got it ferocious with the research. And I was like, oh my God. There are two personality disorders out of the 10 where the older you get, the less likely you are to have it. Mm. The other one, by the way, is antisocial. How crazy is that? As people get into their third and fourth decade of life, especially, but even when it starts in adolescence, you have people that are less likely. You ever seen Shawshank Redemption? Remember Morgan Freeman's character, Red? Yeah. Killed a person, all that stuff. And he's like, I look back and think about his scene when he gets parole. Spoiler alert, if anyone's listening to this, that's the example I sometimes given my classes. I used to work, I was a forensic psychologist, worked in jails and prisons. I'd interview these guys and it's like, what happens? We could talk about testosterone and hormones and all that. You know what really happens? It takes us back to Erickson. It's generativity versus like stagnation. It's ego integrity versus despair. People are wanting to see their grandkids and they they also now start thinking about the life they lived. All this stuff happens. Borderline's very similar. It's one of those diagnoses where when people get older, they're less likely to meet it. That doesn't happen with paranoid personality disorder. You know, people don't get less paranoid. Um, but with borderline, I started, I, I, the research supports it. And then I went through it. And like the person I mentioned is yeah, college, a manager at the job they work at, almost 19, doing you know phenomenal, is going to be a social worker, hopefully presenting with me at a conference in the future to talk about their lived experience, certainly better than I could ever do it justice. And you realize, oh, my God, people get better, people heal people change when you start to be on these other ends of it. So those of you who are working with folks with this condition, if your experience might be predominantly in the area of, I have to call impact right now mm -hmm. and I need to get a mobile team. And this person might go to Aurora or some other facility. And then from that, they'll go to IOP. And from that, they'll go to this. And I've been on those sides of that in other ways. You then begin, like, I want you to know that, Recovery is not possible. It's likely. It's very likely. Again, roughly eight out of 10 people with the disorder will have a decade in their life, roughly, in which they're not experiencing this. Think about having conversation with them then, right? Right. I've had the privilege of doing so. I want to share one last thing that's kind of personal. When my daughter was in her, like, I was at my scariest moment. I was up in Wickenburg, and I, I just, man, the, the name William means, uh, like, a strong protector. Mm -hmm. I'm still working on an article about this called The Failed Guardian, like what it means as a caregiver or a parent to not be able to rise to the occasion. I, I realize it's narcissistic uh, to think that way, but at any rate, I get to the clinic, and uh, we were talking about NAU North Valley, the mm -hmm. other program I teach in, these, these therapists in training. And there was a therapist uh, in my pro, well, a therapist in training in the master's degree program. Her name was Edley. Her name's still Edley. And uh, we uh, published an article in a peer-reviewed journal on you know, suicide prevention among sexual minority youth. And this person also is gay, uh, this adolescent. at the uh, And uh, here I was with an adolescent uh, who would was actively trying to die oh. and what, what a what a fraud i felt like and i mentioned edley because i get up to this clinic at the, uh, in wickenburg and uh i my daughter's telling me about you gotta meet my therapist she's not really my therapist but she's the director here and i'm like god it's it's like family day there when they's there for a couple months and i go i go i'll meet her yeah and she her name's edley i was like oh my god so I go and she introduces me and Edley sees me and she already knew <laughs> her same surname. And the person that was treating my family member 
inpatient residential now at this point was the person who wrote the article with me that was making me feel like a fraud. Mm. And she's been out of grad school for less than five years. And she had a profound impact on this person mm. to this day. And it was a weird feeling, man. It's inexplicable, indescribable, I guess would be a better word. And that's when I felt so ineffective, but all of a sudden, so relieved. And that's where you don't, it's not about the letters next to your name. It's not even about how many years you've been doing this. If you can meet them where they're at, don't leave them there. See their dignity and value. Be genuine and real. And to the best degree you can, listen, understand, and validate and empathize. You'll see that in acceptance and commitment therapy. You'll see it in dialectical behavioral therapy. And I don't even remember the question that spurred this response. But it's just me being heartfelt, seeing like when I saw it firsthand, and you see that recovery is not just possible, but probable. Mm. And the only thing that can get in the way is our failure to accept that you realize this is a condition that should no longer be something you run from, but something you see as, oh my God, what an incredible opportunity to meet this person at their most vulnerable in their darkest hour and be a supportive force in their life and help them go from being nobody nowhere to somebody somewhere. Oh, really well said. And, um, you know, I think on, on that note, we probably have found a good place to Kind of wrap things up, uh, Dr. Beverly. I want to thank you so much for stepping into the spotlight here, sharing your expertise, parts of your personal story, instilling hope that patients with borderline personality disorder can and do get better and lead fulfilling lives and and, and recover and uh, have beautiful uh, families and experiences and and you know a large portion of that in, in your story, when you said, you know, all, all you have to do is really just, just be like, drop the, drop all the other stuff, just be there with them. And um, you certainly have, uh, have inspired me and I'm, I'm mm. incredibly grateful for you coming on. I really am to our listeners out there and uh, listener world. Thank you for being with us. Got questions or ideas for the podcast, or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontine, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.